Just a little word of introduction. First of all, is everyone able to hear me? Okay, and everyone has an outline. Great. Uh, my name is George Sanders. I am a <coughs> lay elder here at Grace Church. Uh, I work in the biblical counseling department along with Bill Shannon. He's next door. That's, that's that room. You're over here. You made the right choice this morning. <laughs> Bill forgives you. That's okay. Um, so uh, I work with Bill in the biblical counseling department. I teach the subject counseling class along with Bill, and I teach the premarital class along with Bill and Tom Lehman. I'm active in the Anchored Fellowship. Uh, my wife and I co-labor in many of these ministries together, and she's here on the front row, as well as my, my children, who have come to make sure that I am uh, held accountable for what I'm going to be telling you this morning. So thank you for that. The title of our talk this morning is The Rose Called Forgiveness and the Thorns That Stumble Us. And uh, some of you may have seen this quote, forgiveness is the fragrance the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. It's a metaphor for forgiveness. When another person or when a person forgives another for an offense, it's like a lovely and fragrant violet repaying the heel that crushed it by anointing the heel with its lovely fragrance. Evil is repaid with good. Now, this quote is attributed to Mark Twain, interestingly enough, although there are verses of the same type found in writings from centuries before. In these older writings, the metaphor of a heel is exchanged for an axe, and the crushed violet is exchanged for a sandal tree, which is cut down by the axe. Such a verse runs as follows. The sandal tree perfumes when riven, the axe that laid it low. Let him who hopes to be forgiven forgive and bless his foe. Both of these, there's the word picture of a plant which is wronged, but reacts with forgiveness and, and blessing. Now, regardless of who said it first, it's an accurate description of what forgiveness is all about. Forgiveness is like a beautiful flower, such as a violet or a rose, that repays the heel of the person who crushes it with a wonderful fragrance. The topic of forgiveness can be somewhat confusing, however, and that's what I mean by the thorns that stumble us. Oh, those thorns could be many things. It could be our unwillingness to forgive. It could be uh, this, that, or the other. But I have the thought this morning, and I'll explain it to you. These are things that confuse people about forgiveness, things that are found in Scripture. For instance, are we to forgive everyone unconditionally and without limit? Are we to forgive 70 times 7, as Jesus instructed Peter in Matthew 18, 22? Or should repentance be a requirement for forgiveness, as Jesus told his disciples in Luke 17, 4, when he says that if your brother sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Is forgiveness to be unconditional, something that you grant without repentance or even a request from the offender? Or should it be dependent on repentance? If forgiveness is a flower, as Mark Twain suggested, these and other issues might be termed its thorns. And it's this idea that gives us the title of this morning's talk, The Rose Called Forgiveness and the Thorns That Stumble Us. I thought it would be interesting to start out our time today with a quiz about forgiveness. The answers to these questions really give a brief summary of what we're going to cover in the next hour. The quiz is from a book entitled Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze. Now, I know some of you are teachers in schools. Perhaps some of you have homeschooled your kids. Either way, you give tests for a living. I am not a teacher by profession. In fact, I have been subjected to many tests over a lifetime by my teachers. So perhaps this quiz could be seen as revenge. 
Never. But I forgive you that thought. It's a quick quiz, and uh, we'll take it now. We'll go over it again at the end. You'll find it on your handout. Two or false answers. First question, where deep wounds between people are concerned, forgiveness can be accomplished in a moment. Second, personal happiness and joy result when people live out what the Bible teaches about forgiveness. Thirdly, Christian pastors and counselors agree about what forgiveness is and how it should take place. Fourth, reconciliation occurs properly only when certain conditions are met. Fifthly, Jesus said little about how people should resolve interpersonal conflict. Six, a willingness to forgive tells you something about a person's salvation. Seven, good people get to the bottom of all their disagreements. And number eight, there are times when it's wrong to simply forgive. Now, there's a true story that surrounds the life of John Wesley, the father of Methodism. He was on a ship traveling to the United States en route to Georgia. And on board, there also happened to be General James Oglethorpe, the founder of the state of Georgia. Well, as Wesley was walking back to his own cabin during the voyage, he heard quite a commotion going on inside one of the cabins. As he looked in, he saw General Oglethorpe about ready to give his servant a real walloping because he had been drinking the general's wine. And as Wesley looked on, he heard the general say, I will be avenged. He then sees the poor servant tied hand and foot, and the general about to have him carried up, up onto the deck for a beating. Looking at Wesley, Oglethorpe said, Mr. Wesley, you know I never forgive. To which John Wesley replied in classic fashion, then I hope, sir, you never sin. But we all do sin repeatedly, and therefore we all need God's forgiveness. And others sin against us and need our forgiveness. As Christians, we are to give to others what God has given to us, namely forgiveness. Isn't this Paul's point in Ephesians 4, chapter, chapter 4, rather, verse 32, when he says to the Ephesians, as he challenges them with these words, he says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The 18th century British poet Alexander Pope paraphrased this idea as, To err his human, to forgive divine. Forgiveness lies at the very heart of Christianity. For man to enjoy peace with God, forgiveness of our sins by God is necessary. Yet for us as fallen men, forgiveness is something that we enjoy receiving but find difficult to give. C.S. Lewis said, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have someone or something to forgive. When we're on the receiving end of it, we naturally view merciful forgiveness as one of the highest of all virtues. But when we're the offended party, forgiveness seems like a gross violation of justice. We find it difficult to reconcile the two, mercy and justice. Now, the way God has done it is utterly foreign to the undergenerate mind. And although 2 Corinthians 5.21 doesn't mention the word forgiveness, it's all about forgiveness. It says, For he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God's justice was satisfied by what? By punishing Christ as though he had committed all of the sins of the elect. 
God treated Christ as though he had sinned so that God could treat the sinner as though he were sinless and therefore grant him mercy. This is the ground of all forgiveness. And this is how God can remain just while justifying the ungodly. The sinner contributes nothing whatsoever to the process. Forgiveness is initiated and obtained solely by the working of God. There is no merit that the sinner contributes to the process. And this we term judicial forgiveness. But there's another type of forgiveness that God grants to believers that we term parental forgiveness. This is the type that 1 John 1, 9 speaks of when the author says to believers, if we confess our sins, he, that is God, God the Father, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin needs to be confessed and forsaken regularly. The pardon of a loving but displeased father must be sought. And the promise is that God will forgive. Not judicial forgiveness, which is a one-time event for each believer. This is talking about parental forgiveness. The fact the words confess, forgive, and cleanse in 1 John 1, 9 have the meaning of confessing, forgiving, <clears throat> cleansing. They keep on happening. <clears throat> Paraphrase the verse. If we keep on confessing our sins, he is faithful and righteous to keep on forgiving us of our sins and to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. This is parental forgiveness. And this gift of God's forgiveness, both judicial and parental, becomes the reason and pattern for how we are to forgive others. When Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, the word just gives the reason. Because God has forgiven you. But it also suggests that this is the pattern. We're to forgive just as God forgives. And Colossians 3, 12 through 13 carries the same thought. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So also should I, so also should you. Now, if we keep in perspective how much God forgave and how much it cost him to forgive, we realize that no action against us can ever justify an unforgiving spirit. Christians who refuse to forgive others have lost sight of what their own forgiveness involved. Unforgiveness does exist in the church, but without forgiveness, peace in the church, peace in our families, and peace with unbelievers with whom we interact is impossible. That's because where there is no forgiveness... There is no reconciliation between offended parties. Without forgiveness, the damage that conflict creates will remain. Now, the forgiveness that God grants to us as believers is vertical forgiveness. But this morning, I'm speaking primarily of horizontal forgiveness, people forgiving people. As believers, we are to forgive others in the horizontal dimension because God forgave us in the vertical dimension. Now, as we think about this, some questions, as, or as I would, might call them thorns, come to mind. The Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 verses that we've just looked at talk about how we are to forgive others just as God forgave us. But God's justice was satisfied by punishment, the punishment of Christ. It's that concept of propitiation. So the first question would be this. 
Does our sense of justice need to be satisfied before we forgive someone? God required the sacrifice of Christ before he forgave our sins. Should we imitate God? Can't we at least get an apology? Or is forgiveness to be unconditional? So that's question one. Question two, Christ taught unconditional forgiveness. But is that the rule in every case? Are we always to forgive unconditionally? Or are there times when forgiveness should be given only when the offender confesses the sin and asks for forgiveness? And question three, what are the steps that a person needs to take to achieve biblical reconciliation? What should be the pattern for this reconciliation? What is reconciliation? Now, these are questions that suggest themselves when I think about forgiveness. They're the thorns that accompany the beautiful flower. So let's look at what answers Scripture gives us. I'm going to look at three things. First of all, what Christ taught on forgiveness and how he forgave others. I'm going to secondly look at what the New Testament authors wrote about forgiveness and how they forgave others. And thirdly, I'm going to look at the lives of Peter and Paul and Mark and Barnabas. And finally, the life of Joseph. Joseph, who went from being a slave and prisoner to being the prime minister of Egypt. A story from which we can learn much about forgiveness and reconciliation when it comes to his own family. So to start out, let's be sure that we grasp the meaning of the Greek word that's translated as forgiveness or forgive in our New Testaments. It's a Greek word, atheomi, which is made up of apo, which means separation, putting distance between, and the Greek word hemi, meaning to put in motion, to put in action. And putting these two together, we have atheomi, which is an action that causes separation. It refers to totally detaching yourself from a previous condition. It's putting something away or laying it aside. It's the voluntary release of a person or thing over which one has legal or actual control. And in the context of forgiveness, Afiyami speaks of how God lets go of the obligation we owe him because of our sin against his holiness. In a sense, we do the same when we forgive. I mean, we're not holy like God, but we do let go of the obligation that the offending party has toward us because of the wrong they've done us. So let's get back to our first question. Does our sense of justice need to be satisfied before we forgive someone? Well, let's just look at what Jesus taught about forgiveness and how he modeled it. He had a lot to say. First of all, for starters, at the beginning of his ministry, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ tells us not to seek personal revenge. In Matthew 5.39, he tells his disciples to turn the other cheek when they are personally offended. Now, the rabbis of that day contended that a personal offense allowed one to require an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth from the offending party. But Jesus states in verse 17 of Matthew 5 that he did not come to abolish the law of Moses, but that the eye for eye and tooth for tooth section of the law was giving sentencing guidelines that a judge should follow in a case of personal injury, not how a person should handle a personal offense. Jesus was not negating the law. Rather, he was saying that a personal offense was not to be the grounds for personal retaliation, for revenge, or for spite. Secondly, Jesus also spoke in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, again, the Sermon on the Mount, of how a person should respond to persecution if it's for the sake of righteousness when they're being attacked, and they're being attacked because of their relationship with Christ. He said that such a person was blessed 
and instructs them to rejoice and be glad, for the reward in heaven would be great. Jesus says nothing about harboring resentment or evil thoughts toward the attacker. And he demonstrated this attitude in the events leading up to his own death. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.23 about Christ, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to God his Father who judges righteously. And what should be our response to this example of Christ? Well, according to 1 Peter 2.20, but if you do, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Peter is saying that we are to imitate Christ in the way we patiently suffer wrongs against our person that occur because we're doing what's right. Furthermore, Jesus' mind was not on revenge or even self-defense in his final hours. It was on forgiveness. As he hung on the Christ, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know know not what they do. Now, why didn't he personally forgive his offenders like he had forgiven sinners in the past? Well, because now he was the sin bearer, so he prayed for his Father to forgive the sinners. Yet when the thief next to him on the cross admitted that he was suffering justly for his sins and asked Christ in Luke 23, 42, to remember him when he came into his kingdom, Christ didn't rebuke the thief for mocking him earlier in the day. Instead, he expressed forgiveness when he told him that he would be with him that day in paradise. So to summarize, Jesus said, forgive, forgive, forgive. We all need to imitate Christ more in this, in our homes, in our churches, and in the world we live in. And thirdly, Jesus also spoke of forgiveness when he modeled prayer for the disciples in Matthew 6, again, Sermon on the Mount. As he instructs his disciples on how to pray in in verse 12, he says this, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. From the parallel passage in Luke 11, we know that debts is not speaking of owing someone money. It was referring to spiritual debts since Luke, Luke uses the word sins. Now, this request for forgiveness was at the heart of Jesus's example of how his disciples were to pray. And we know this because in the verses immediately following the prayer, Jesus chose to comment only on the topic of forgiveness. He said this, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Forgiveness of someone's offense against us is critically important for believers because it's directly tied into God's parental forgiveness toward us. Christ is saying simply this, if we don't forgive others, God will not parentally forgive us. Now, we know this is not speaking of God's judicial forgiveness, uh, the type that's involved in justification, since Jesus is speaking to whom? He's speaking to his disciples. He's telling them how to pray to their Father in heaven. After all, that's how he starts out the prayer, our Father in heaven. And since they're believers, they're what? They're already judicially forgiven. Christ is talking about daily cleansing from the defilement of sin, sin that displeases our heavenly Father, that grieves him, and sin that can result in God's chastening of us. Jesus is saying that if we don't forgive others their offenses against us, God will withhold his parental forgiveness from us. Now, much of what Jesus taught about forgiveness ran counter to what the rabbis of that day were teaching. 
If you were to ask a rabbi how many times you should forgive another person for the same offense, he would tell you three times. The rabbis quoted Amos 1, where God pronounces doom on Israel's enemies. God says that their cup of transgression was full after three transgressions and that he would punish them for the fourth. If this was God's way, then the rabbis reasoned that man should do the same. But, but in Matthew 18, where Jesus is taught on the issue of church discipline, Peter immediately asked him in verse 21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? I guess Peter reasoned that if the rabbi said three times, he would double it and add one. That was a number of completion after all. And that seemed generous enough. And what was Jesus' answer? Not seven, but 70 times seven. In other words, Peter, don't keep track of how many times you forgive someone. Just forgive them. No conditions attached. Inside his head, Peter may have thought, you've got to be kidding. 70 times seven? If you think about it, how many times do we repeat the same sin, being unloving, unkind, angry, impatient, and still come to God in prayer for parental forgiveness? And how many times will he forgive us? He doesn't keep tabs. He just forgives. It's God's standard for parental forgiveness. It's limitless. And Jesus is saying to Peter that it should be his standard as well as our standard. And to make his point, Jesus goes on in verse 23 to tell the parable of a servant who owed his king an enormous debt, yet was forgiven the debt by the king. But as soon as he was forgiven it, the servant went out and found a man who owed him a much smaller sum of money and demanded payment of him. When the man couldn't pay, he had him thrown into debtor's prison until he could. Now when news of this gets back to the king, he's furious. He has a wicked servant delivered over to the torturers until he could pay. And Jesus concludes the parable in verse 35 with the words, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So to summarize what Jesus had to say about forgiveness, we're to avoid personal retaliation for an offense against us. We're to be willing to suffer wrong for the sake of Christ. And thirdly, we're to forgive others because God has forgiven us and do this time and time and time again in obedience to Christ. Our forgiveness is to be unconditional and without limit. So we have the answer to our first question. Does our sense of justice always need to be satisfied before we forgive someone? No. The horizontal forgiveness that we extend to our fellow man is not patterned after God's judicial forgiveness that requires a payment for sin, but is rather patterned after God's parental forgiveness that's given freely, lavishly, and repetitively, even for sins that are committed over and over and over again. I commit, you commit, the same sins over and over again. But God doesn't say, sorry, George, you used up all of my forgiveness when you were prideful for the 9,999th time this month as of yesterday. There's no more my forgiveness left for pride this month. You'll have to wait it out until the first of next month rolls around. No. God doesn't keep on forgiving, and we are to forgive in the same way. Unconditional forgiveness imitates God. We're to choose to forgive others. It's a matter of our choosing to do so, not a matter of how we feel. It's 100% you and 0% them, a lot like agape love. It's a matter of your will to obey Christ's command, regardless of how you feel. This is not a contract where the offender offers repentance and you offer forgiveness. No, choose to forgive unconditionally. 
In Matthew 18:35 that we read earlier, at the end of the parable about the ungrateful servant, Jesus says that we will be treated like the ungrateful servant if we do not forgive one another, he says, from the heart. Heart means the mind. It's not about how we feel, but it's about a conscious decision that we make in our minds. That's the kind of forgiveness that Stephen showed as he was being stoned. That's also the kind of forgiveness that Christ showed to wicked men in the events leading up to his death. What would our marriages and friendships be like if we confronted every offense against us and insisted that repentance occur before we forgave? Would quickly lose our friends and alienate our spouses? Unconditional forgiveness is the very foundation for peace in marriages, in friendships, and relationships of all sorts. You can see the wisdom in what Jesus is advocating. Now on to question two. Are we to forgive unconditionally in every case? Jesus gives us two examples of when our forgiveness should be conditional. Interesting. The sinner must repent before you are to forgive them. First, in Luke 17, 3, he says this, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, in the verses just before this, Jesus said that if you caused a weaker brother to stumble, it would be better for you if a millstone were fastened about your neck and you were thrown into the sea. The context is a brother who sins by causing a weaker brother to stumble. And in that context, Jesus is saying that repentance is necessary before forgiveness is to be granted. You're to rebuke the person for their sin, but forgive them if repentance occurs. And a second example from Christ's teaching, Matthew 18, 15, familiar passage to most of you where Jesus is teaching on church discipline. He says that you are to rebuke a sinning brother if they sin against you. As the first step, you are to do so in private, but then do so in an increasingly public fashion until they do repent. Then and only then will the matter be settled. And if the sinning brother doesn't repent, you're to put him out of the church. Now, what's interesting in both of these examples, in both the Luke 17 passage and the Matthew 18 church discipline passage, these are both in the context of stumbling another believer and causing them to sin. Why do I say that? Well, in both of these examples, in the verses just before the ones I quoted, Jesus says that it would be better for the person who stumbles, a young believer, to have a millstone hung around their neck and then be thrown into the sea. In the book of Luke, for believer, Luke uses the words little one, and Matthew, Matthew uses the phrase little ones who believe in me. But it's the same, stumbling another young believer. Now, if we keep these two examples in mind, I'm now going to give you a list of four situations found in Scripture where repentance is required before you are to forgive. They all involve sin that hurts another person. I'm going to roll Jesus' Luke 17 example that we just looked at of a sin that stumbles a weaker believer. I'm going to roll that into this first principle. So four situations. Number one, when there's a situation where you witness an offense against someone else, you are to confront the offender. And if you're having trouble seeing this, it shows up well on your handout. Okay? Justice does not permit you to cover a sin against someone else. Okay? Now, I can unilaterally and unconditionally forgive a personal offense 
when I'm the victim because only I am offended. But I see, if I see that someone else has been sinned against, it's my duty to seek justice on their behalf. Now, if the victim chooses to ignore a personal slight or insult, that's their choice. But it's not up to me to decide. In a Matthew 18 passage, if a person sins against another to the degree that the person goes to them and confronts them and they won't listen and repent, then as a believer, you may be asked to go with the offended person and confront the offender. You do not cover the sin. It's the business of the person who was offended. There's some Old Testament verses that make the same point. Exodus 23, 6 says, You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Doesn't say forgive. In Jeremiah 22.3, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. You don't say forgiven. So when, else, so when someone else is wronged, pursue justice for them. Don't just forgive. Now, a second type of case, number two, when someone else might be harmed, is when ignoring a sin might hurt the sinner. And in that case, confrontation is required. Galatians 6.1 reads, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. It's speaking of what? It's speaking of someone who's trapped in some sinful habit, desperate for help. Overlooking the sin is not an option. Love requires that you confront and seek to restore them gently and free them from the trap of that particular sin. And Paul goes on to say in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And by the law of Christ, he means what? He means Christ's command to love one another. This process is demonstrating love for the other person as you bear their burden by gently confronting their sin. And what type of sin would that be? Well, I would suggest things like serious doctrinal error or moral failure, prolonged repetition repetition of the same sin, such as angry speech, maybe destructive actions like drug or alcohol abuse, or any other transgression that poses a serious threat to their physical and spiritual well-being. In all these cases, the motivation for confrontation is, is love for the offender and a desire for their good, for their restoration. It's not for your personal revenge, punishment of the offender, or any other type of self-fulfillment by the one confronting. And that's why Paul says this type of confrontation should be, should be done by someone who is spiritually mature. Now, a third category of a misdeed harming others that requires repentance would be the category of church discipline that Jesus gives us in Matthew 18. It's when the type or the degree of sin has the potential to damage the church. For example, look to Paul when he rebuked the Corinthian church for allowing a church member to sleep with his father's wife. He points out in 1 Corinthians 5.1 that even the non-Christians were shocked by this scandalous behavior, and he orders the Corinthian church to excommunicate the offender. Paul explains that this type of sin will contaminate the entire church, much like leaven affects the entire lump of dough. It also brings reproach in the name of Christ. Unconditional forgiveness is not possible in such a case, and church discipline should be pursued as outlined in Matthew 18. So three categories, and our fourth and final category of an offense that requires repentance before forgiveness is granted is 
when an offense results in a broken relationship. First, let's look at what happens when this occurs between fellow believers. When there's a broken relationship between Christians, unconditional forgiveness is not appropriate. Say you're the the offending party. You should seek forgiveness, and the offended party should grant it. Matthew 5, 23 through 24 reads, If you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. In other words, if you've wronged your brother, and that's why your brother would have something against you, you need to be reconciled to him according to Christ. Reconciliation takes precedence even over worship, in this case, offering a sacrifice. You have a responsibility to pursue reconciliation if you're the offending party. This is a mandate from God. And the offended party should forgive the offender since they're coming, the offender's coming with a repentant heart. There are no grounds for refusing to forgive that person. So that's if you're the offending party. On the other hand, if you're the one offended, Luke 17 applies. Remember, Jesus says you're to go and confront him in Luke 17, verse 3. And if your brother sins, rebuke him, right? And if he repents, forgive him. Here's a practical example of these principles in action. Say I were to sin against a fellow believer in what I think is a fairly minor way. Say I unknowingly took the last parking spot in the church parking lot one Sunday morning while someone else was waiting for the spot. Now, he or she would probably be so gracious that I suspect that no break in our relationship would occur. I mean, after all, I didn't know it. He would probably simply forgive me, and there would be no need for reconciliation since our relationship wouldn't be harmed. It would certainly be right, though, for me to ask for forgiveness once I became aware of my action. But say I do the same to a weaker brother. The same parking lot offense might lead to a break in our relationship. And when I discover that, Matthew 5 instructs me to go to him and be reconciled to him. Before I even go into the sanctuary to worship, I should do that. And the brother would also be right to approach me and let me know of the issue, just like it describes in Matthew 18. And if it's something that he can't cover... That assumes that it's something that he can't cover by just allowing it to pass, okay? And when he comes to me and confronts me, and when I respond with repentance, it's what? It's his obligation to forgive me and therefore be reconciled to me, as Luke 17 describes. But what if the offending party refuses to reconcile, say, someone in the church? Paul tells the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6 that under no circumstances was one believer to sue another in court. Paul says to settle the issue inside the church. And if the offending party refuses to repent, he may need to be put out of the church, and the offended party may simply need to suffer a loss for the sake of Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Don't bring disgrace on the church. These are some of the thorns that come with understanding forgiveness. Now, we just looked at a case when the offender and the offended were both Christians. But what if there's a broken relationship, but the offending party is not a Christian? The Christians should still forgive from their heart, as Christ directed in Matthew 18.35, and should also pursue reconciliation. As Paul says in Romans 12.18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And if the non-Christian refuses to reconcile, 
then the relationship will remain in disrepair until such time as the other party wishes to restore it. Fifteen years ago, I had two nurses who worked for me in the operating room. One chose to leave and go to work for another doctor. She then talked my other nurse into joining her. Where where I grew up in Texas, we call that cattle wrestling. People went to jail or worse for that. Now, what did I do? I had her arrested. No. Uh, (laughs) After giving it some thought and prayer, I, I made a conscious decision to forgive the first nurse. I wanted to be at peace with her. So I called her up and told her that as a Christian, I was forgiving her, but that our relationship could not be restored until she asked for forgiveness for her misdeed. Her response was that this was just the way business was done. She never called back, and to this day, our relationship remains unrepaired. So where are we in the thorn patch? Well, we have one overarching principle from Christ, right? For the vast majority of offenses, forgive unconditionally. But we've just looked at four special cases where repentance is required before formal forgiveness is to be granted. Each involves a situation where someone else is harmed by the offense. The first case was if another person is offended, if another person is offended, you're to seek justice for that person unless they choose to forgive the offense. Second one, if the sinner is caught in a pattern of sin that's harming them spiritually or physically, and it's too much for them to bear alone, you have a duty to confront them over their sin and gently restore them. It says nothing about forgiveness. Thirdly, when sin damages the church, such as a very public sin that brings reproach in the name of Christ, or sin that if you fail to confront would encourage others to sin in a similar fashion, the offender must be pursued until they repent. That's Matthew 18, church discipline. And the fourth example is when a relationship has been broken, Reconciliation should be pursued so that the relationship can be restored. And if reconciliation cannot be obtained, you're still to forgive the offending party from your heart, but not in a public way. So what happens in these four types of situations when repentance does not occur, when the offender is confronted? Does that mean that you withhold forgiveness? After all, it says in Luke 17 to rebuke the offender and and forgive if he repents, if If he doesn't repent, are we to say, well, I won't forgive you then? Well, for an answer, look at what Christ prayed about his tormentors when he was being crucified. In Luke 23, 34, he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. There certainly was no repentance on the part of those crucifying Christ, was there? Yet Christ still prayed for their forgiveness. For restoration of their relationship, there needs to be repentance on the part of the offender before we grant formal forgiveness, but forgiveness should still be the attitude in our hearts as it was in Christ's heart. We should be eager to forgive. So we have our answer to question two. Are we to turn the other cheek as Christ taught in Matthew 5, 39 in all situations? Are we to forgive unconditionally in all cases? Well, the answer is no. You need to confront a person over what they've done when it involves harm to others, the offense is damaging the offender, when the offense damages the church, or when a relationship has been broken. A formal granting of forgiveness requires repentance in those four cases. Now notice how Scripture introduced the words, be reconciled in Matthew 5.24, when Christ was saying, if if your brother has something against you and you're offering a sacrifice, you're to go to that brother and be reconciled, okay? Reconciliation, reconciled. It's a translation of the Greek word alasso that speaks of a change, an exchange, 
a transformation. Basically, the relationship between the offender and the offended is changed from one of being enemies to one of being at peace. Remember Romans 5.18 where it says this, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. We're no longer God's enemies. We're at peace with God through the sacrificial work of Christ. Now, what about our third and final question that has to do with reconciliation? What are the steps that a person needs to take to achieve biblical reconciliation? We know that relationships should be restored. We just looked at that. So say they repent and then you forgive. Does that automatically restore the relationship? Where does reconciliation fit in? Scripture commands reconciliation in Matthew 5.24 and says that it's a matter of urgency. I mean, after all, you're to be immediately reconciled and then go back and continue offering your sacrifice. So how do you go about that reconciliation? Well, let's look at the lives of Peter, Paul, and Joseph since they have much to teach us about this. First, Peter and Paul. Paul was known for his what? Directness and outspokenness. Amen. As Paul, the Pharisee, he made it a point to travel around Israel and the surrounding nations asking for permission to arrest Christians. Now, in Acts 15, when Barnabas wanted Mark to rejoin the Paul and Barnabas ministry team after Mark had deserted them on a previous missionary journey, Paul refused, resulting in the breakup of the team. As you recall, Paul went on with Silas and Barnabas went on with Mark. Barnabas' name means what? It means son of encouragement. And my reading of the New Testament leads me to wonder whether Paul was up to Barnabas' level of encouragement. So what happened to Mark? Well, he eventually found his way to Rome where he came under the influence of Peter. The gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter. They worked together closely on it. Peter mentored Mark. And what do we find at the end of Paul's life? He calls for Mark to join him in Rome while he's in prison to assist him since, to quote Paul, he is very useful to me for ministry. 2 Timothy 4.11. Now let's look at how forgiveness and reconciliation wind their way through the story. Peter was forgiven by Christ for, for, or what, for betraying him on the night when he was arrested. Peter denied that he knew Christ three times that night. And Christ made it a point to reconcile Peter to himself three times on the beach at the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection. Now Paul had publicly called out Peter. Recall how Paul wrote in Galatians 2, 11 through 13, that when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, feeling the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Paul boldly confronted Peter about his fear of man and hypocrisy. Perhaps this affected his relationship with Peter, but in Scripture, we find no mention of any antagonism from Peter toward Paul. Perhaps Peter remembered how Jesus had forgiven and been reconciled to him. And finally, Barnabas and Paul were reconciled, according to 1 Corinthians 9.6, where Paul refers to the two of them working together in Corinth. Reconciliation promotes peace among believers. And it all started with Christ modeling forgiveness and restoring Peter. Peter reconciled with Paul, reconciled with Paul. Paul reconciled with Mark and Barnabas. And where else in Scripture do we find reconciliation? Well, look at the life of Joseph found in Genesis 37 through 50. 
You'll recall that Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob and how his 10 brothers sold him into slavery out of jealousy of that favoritism. He's taken to Egypt, sold to the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard, and becomes his most trusted servant. But the captain's lustful wife accuses Joseph of making advances toward her, which lands Joseph in prison where he serves time, making his total time in servitude 13 years. Finally, one of his fellow prisoners who was released from prison by Pharaoh remembers Joseph's skill in dream interpretation and recommends him to Pharaoh when Pharaoh has a disturbing dream. Joseph interprets a dream and predicts seven years of plentiful harvest in Egypt, followed by seven years of devastating famine. He also suggests a plan in which the country would store up excess grain in the time of plenty that could be sold to the people in the time of the upcoming famine, making Pharaoh a very wealthy man. Pharaoh wisely promotes Joseph to the second in command over the land of Egypt so he can implement that plan. Joseph then oversees the storage of surplus grain during seven years of plenty. And now that the famine has finally begun, he finds himself in the presence of his 10 hungry brothers who had been sent by their father Jacob from their home in Canaan to buy grain in Egypt. One commentator has said that what we have before us is Joseph's supreme temptation, the supreme temptation of his life. But it wasn't despair in the face of his 13 years of imprisonment. It's not to resist the temptation of lust in the face of sexual advances by an attractive woman. His supreme temptation was to be bitter and unforgiving when wrong. Would he forgive his brothers? Would he reconcile with those who had done him such wrong? He would, and he does, and this is what is so striking and instructing and convicting about these chapters, Genesis 42-45. So we're going to take a look at these dramatic chapters and see how Joseph mends the fences with his brothers, to see how the process of reconciliation works. And I would suggest that this is to be a model that we're to follow when we seek reconciliation with another who's wronged us and broken our relationship. Now, as Joseph mends the fences of this broken relationship and achieves reconciliation, there are three planks that need repair. The first plank, the wrong needed to be faced by his brothers. The second plank, it needed to be forsaken by his brothers. And the third, it needed to be forgiven by Joseph. Faced, forsaken, forgiven. The first plank in the mending of the fence is what? It's an honest admittance from the guilty party of their wrong and their sin. Sin must be faced. It must be confronted. Before Joseph could be reconciled to his brothers, which was his intention, the work of reconciliation had to dig up that which had remained buried, naming a sin that had gone unrepented and had never been put to death. Joseph confronts his brothers about their sin. He wants them to agree with him about the nature of their sin and the magnitude of their transgression. Now, it's interesting that the Greek word for confess that we so often quote in the passage from 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess, it's the Greek word amologamon that carries the idea of to agree with. You could actually translate it like this. If we agree with God about our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And that's the first plank in our reconciliation with God. And it's the first plank in our reconciliation with one another. Sin must be faced. It can't be winked at. It can't be nodded at. And it can't be ignored. The work of reconciliation involves digging up sins that have been buried alive, unrepented of, sins that have never been faced or confronted or talked through. 
Steps along the road to reconciliation with man or God start with confrontation or facing the sin. Now, let me say this. I don't think anyone likes to confront, or at least they shouldn't like to confront. And there are really two extremes when it comes to confronting sin or challenging someone about a misdeed. There are some people who who are like bloodhounds. They get to work at the whiff of anything suspicious. And that's one extreme. But there's the other extreme, people who are like ostriches. They like to bury their head in the sand and pretend that nothing happened or it's going to go away once they lift their head out of the sand. We neither want to be a bloodhound or an ostrich, but we do want to confront lovingly and honestly those things that have become an obstacle to free and full relationships. So let's look at what Joseph does. Here he is, body shaven like Egyptian royalty, dressed in royal robes and speaking the Egyptian language. His 10 brothers have no idea who he is. After all, it's been 20 years, but he recognizes them. They're asking to buy grain, and so he personally interviews them in a harsh tone as Genesis 42, 7 says. And they tell him that their father is still living and that they have a younger brother back home and that one of their brothers is no longer alive. That's Joseph. He then deals harshly with them by first accusing them of being spies, imprisons all of them for three days, and then releases all but Simeon. He tells the rest to go back to their home and bring back their younger brother, Benjamin, to see if they're telling the truth. That's before he'll release Simeon. The brothers then speak among themselves in their own language, unaware that Joseph understands everything they're saying. They confess the guilt of their sin against Joseph and reason that this is why they're in their present predicament. In Genesis 42, 21, they say, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben then adds, didn't I tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Now, if you connect the dots, you'll see the shadows of what they'd done to Joseph. They were reaping what they'd sown 20 years before when Joseph was considered by them to be a spy because he had given an evil report to their father. Remember that in Genesis 37? At first, they were going to kill Joseph. Reuben talks him out of that and then suggests they throw him in a pit so he could come back and rescue him. But while they're eating, a caravan of traders come by, and Judah suggests that they sell him to the traders. Now Joseph is confronting them with what they've done to him by basically doing the same things to them, accusing them of being spies, throwing them all in prison, and then releasing all but Simeon. And he's carefully observing their responses. Now this wasn't easy for Joseph. He would break down and weep on occasion, as it describes in chapter 42, verse 24. But he obviously believed that this was necessary. Jesus did the same thing with Peter on the beach at the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection. He didn't say, I forgive you, Peter, and then go on like nothing had happened, did he? He asked Peter if he loved him three times in all, one time for each time Peter had betrayed him. He forced Peter to face what he had done. It's the first step, the first step in the biblical process of reconciliation, the first plank in the fence that must be repaired. The offense needs to be faced. Second plank in mending the broken fence is forsaking the offense. The offense needs to be faced, and then it needs to be forsaken. You know, I think Joseph had already forgiven his brothers in their heart, in his heart, before they came to Egypt to buy grain. But if he's to forgive them formally, inviting them back into his life to be reconciled to them and them to him, what Jesus was talking about in Luke 17, 4, when he tells the disciples to forgive a brother if he repents. To do that, 
Joseph wants to establish that there has been real repentance and real remorse on the part of his brothers. You and I should grant forgiveness from our hearts, have an attitude of forgiveness toward anyone who's wronged us, as Jesus commands us to do. You find it in the life of Stephen as he's stoned to death. You find it in the life of Christ as he's crucified. There's that desire, that wish, that openness to forgive on the part of Stephen and Christ. You and I should grant that same kind of forgiveness from our hearts, which allows us to get rid of bitterness and resentment before God so we can live our lives in peace, whether the offender responds or not. But if real reconciliation is to take place, then forgiveness needs to move from a one-way street to a conditional two-way street. The person who's to receive our forgiveness must repent of their sin if there's to be reconciliation. This is what you have going on here in the life of Joseph. You know, I think from a human point of view, Joseph would have been happy for instant reconciliation. I mean, think of it. It's been months or even years between chapter 42 when he sees his brother for the first time in years and when Jacob finally comes down to Egypt in chapter 45. Remember Joseph at first sends his nine brothers back home while Simeon stays in prison. Then the nine brothers come back with Benjamin. Then they go back to Canaan to get Jacob and their families. And then Jacob finally arrives in Egypt. That took a long time. It would have been easy, would it not, to just say, hey, guys, it's Joseph. I forgive you. But listen, from a human point of view, Joseph would have been happy for instant reconciliation. But then he would have seen, because he, why? He would have seen his father and Benjamin and uh, all, all the sooner. But Joseph was patient. He spoke and acted in such a way that the thoughts of his brother's hearts were revealed. And God finally brought them to true repentance. It's the difference between what Paul calls godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, right? If you look at 2 Corinthians 7, Joseph wasn't going to settle for simple regret or shallow remorse. He wanted the deep repentance that 2 Corinthians 7.10 speaks of when it says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. What's the difference? Well, on the one hand, there is remorse, but it's centered on self. It's all about the consequences you find yourself in because of your sin. That's worldly sorrow. That's your kid caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Those are, those are crocodile tears and there's a simple, sorry. But the real story is that they didn't get the cookie and you spoiled their plans. That's worldly sorrow. It's shallow, self-centered, and it doesn't lead to life. It leads to death. It just produces more sins, deception, and self-centeredness. But godly sorrow that's centered upon God's glory, that fixed on Christ, that type of sorrow produces real repentance, anguish of the soul, and alteration in your life. If you want to see remorse and repentance side by side, then look at Peter who turned back to Christ in repentance while Judas turned away in remorse. Jesus' repentance was self-centered. It was all about the consequences. It was all about his dreams foiled, his aspirations never reached. It was all about his own disgrace. But Peter, we read that he wept bitterly, sorted it out with the Lord, and changed his ways. Joseph isn't about to settle for worldly sorrow. He's looking for godly sorrow from his brothers. And so to answer the question of which kind of sorrow were his brothers demonstrating to repair the second plank by having his brothers forsake their sin— Joseph sets them up. Follow me here. I'm going to take you through several passages. So the brothers have headed home, right? Simeon's in prison. Joseph isn't going to believe their story until they bring their younger brother, Benjamin, back. So they go home and they tell their father what happened. They tell him that this Egyptian official spoke roughly to them, but he gave them food. They left. And then they found that the money they had bought the food with was in their bags. 
So they plead with Jacob to let Benjamin travel back with them so that they can prove they're not spies and not thieves. But Joseph refuses, right? I'm sorry, but Jacob refuses, right? He's, he's lost too, Joseph. And he's not about to lose another son of Rachel. It may even be that he didn't trust his own sons. Maybe the years have produced certain suspicions in his mind about the loss of Joseph. So Reuben, the oldest son, pleads with him in chapter 42, verse 36. It says this, and Reuben spoke to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you're taking, then you would bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now we don't know how long the intervening period is, but they've got food. Simon is back in prison in Egypt. And Jacob's not about to allow them to take Benjamin back to Egypt. But what we find at the beginning of chapter 43 is that the severe famine has continued. And at the end of the day, Jacob had no choice. Here he is trying to preserve the life of Benjamin. But if he digs his heels in here, they're all going to lose their lives. More food is needed, so he resigns himself to the inevitable. And this time it's Judah who offers a guarantee. In chapter 43, verse 8, Judah said to his father Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I not, if I not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. And what's striking about that? Reuben, we understand. Reuben wasn't in with both feet first time around. In fact, he tried to talk his brothers out of harming Joseph, Right? But Judah, this is a change. And why? Because Judah was the one who suggested that they sell Joseph into slavery. Chapter 37, verse 26, Judah said something like, hey, what's the point of killing him? Let's make some money on him. But here we have Judah offering a guarantee of safety for Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. And so they head down to Egypt, and we read that when the brothers arrive and Joseph sees Benjamin, he can hardly contain himself. Chapter 43, verse 29 And he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. He said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out for he was deeply stirred over his brother. He wanted to say right there and then, hey, Benji, it's me. But why didn't he? Because sin is too serious. Serious. Forgiveness is too precious to settle for something shallow and superficial. No worldly sorrow will do in the place of godly sorrow. And so Joseph restrains himself. In fact, we read that he goes into his own chamber and weeps. This is dramatic stuff, but Joseph is holding it in. He realizes that he's forgiven his brothers in his heart. He's also willing to grant them formal forgiveness, but there first needs to be real repentance in order that restoration take place. He needs to see evidence that it's not shallow regret or remorse, but that it's deep repentance. So he seats them at a table and treats them to some hospitality. Look at this in chapter 43, verse 32. This is interesting. So they served him by himself and them by themselves. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. What the text is saying is that he seated his brothers from the oldest to the youngest in birth order. What a coincidence, his brothers thought. How could he know? Oh, yeah. There's purpose here. There's planning here. Joseph is probing. Joseph is setting out to see if their repentance is real. 
And in verse 34, he took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was what? It was five times as much as any of theirs. What is happening? Who is getting special treatment? The youngest Benjamin and not the oldest, as was the tradition in that day. And Joseph wants to see how they react when someone is showing favor to the youngest of the brothers who doesn't deserve it. He wants to see if anything has changed because when his father showed him favor, when he was the second youngest son, they mistreated him. Now he wants to see if the brothers have changed when he shows Benjamin the youngest favor. If there's going to be a change in the relationship, there's got to be a change of heart on the part of the offenders. And you know what? There's no reaction to Joseph's generosity toward Benjamin, which is a good sign. Change has happened. They've repented. They've turned from their previous pattern of behavior. They've forsaken their sin. The remorse that the brothers expressed when they met Joseph for the first time is proving to be godly repentance. The Lord is bringing them, confronting their sin, from confronting their sin to conviction of their sin, so that they may enjoy Joseph's compassion. So after this, what happens? Well, he sends his brothers home, right? With their bags full of grain, but he places, what? Joseph places his own personal silver drinking cup into Benjamin's bag. Well, the brothers all leave, but they get only so far up the road when Joseph's guards go after them, stop them, search their bags, and find the cup in Benjamin's bag. The guards then accuse them of stealing them. They are all, we stole nothing. And they hadn't. And this is the final part of the test. The guards bring them all back. Benjamin is charged with stealing from Joseph. And they know what that means. That means curtains. You don't sit at an Egyptian lord's table enjoying his hospitality and then take the silverware. But here's what happens. The brothers stick up for Benjamin this time. Nobody stuck up for Joseph. In fact, Judah is the one who argues for Benjamin. He actually offers himself as a sacrificial lamb in Benjamin's place. Look at verse, 40, uh, verse 18 of chapter 44. Then Judah approached him, that's Joseph, and said, O oh my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. Skip down to verse 33. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Please don't do this to Benjamin. Please don't do this because it would break my father's heart. When you agree that this is evidence of real repentance, there is a genuine change that can be measured here. This test has helped Joseph plumb the depths of their sorrow. It has helped him measure the breadth of their anguish. The wrong was being faced and the wrong was being forsaken. They owned their sin and now they disown their sin. And when Joseph saw that, he opens his heart to them. So the brothers have faced their sin, forsaken their sin. They've repented. And now the final plank in repairing the fence in the process of biblical reconciliation, the third F, Joseph publicly forgives their sin. Sin was faced by the brothers. It was forsaken by the brothers. And now it is publicly forgiven by Joseph. We read in chapter 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. It was a very private moment. It was an emotional moment. I'm sure that their hearts skipped a beat as he revealed to his brothers 
that the man they had been dealing with was Joseph. They must have stood there like terrified sheep. Their worst nightmare had just become a reality. There they stood, probably shaking, stunned, and silent. But into the silence, the voice of Joseph speaks. Hey, guys, don't grieve. Don't be angry. It's not what you think. What you think is going to happen is not going to happen. And what you can't imagine could happen is about to happen. I forgive you. God has sent me here to protect the children of Jacob so that he can keep his covenant with Abraham. Hey, guys, go and get Papa. Bring him down. I've got a nice piece of real estate called Goshen. You're going to like it. You bring the kids down. Bring everything down. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. Utterly amazing. Grace ruled, love reigned, forgiveness was offered, forgiveness was received. It's powerful. Now, I think two things are going on here. First, Joseph was conscious of God's government, and second, he was conscious of God's grace. First, God's government, and by this I mean that Joseph was aware of God's sovereignty. He says in chapter 45, verse 5, Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And again, after Jacob, his father, died, Joseph says this in chapter 50, verse 18. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The upper pool of God's sovereignty lifted Joseph out of the pit of resentment in which he could have so easily languished. In fact, he was able to see himself as an instrument in the hand of God, bringing himself and his brothers to a place that not only secured his future, but also secured their future. That's a staggering thought. When you and I can grasp that within the sovereignty of God, the offenses that we bear, the wrongs that are done toward us, all fit into a greater plan, That realization enables us to deal with resentment and bitterness and enables us to forgive more quickly. We need to embrace the thought that the hurt, the sin, the event, the disloyalty, the betrayal, the abuse is still under the sovereign control of God. Though it's an evil in and of itself, the great alchemist can make it all work together for good. Joseph is forgiving with a hindsight of how God had worked it all together for good. And that enables him to say, Hey, guys, hold on for a minute. Don't be afraid. I see what God has been up to. But even when you and I don't have that privilege, you and I still need to trust God enough to forgive, even when we are not sure how it all makes sense and how it all works together. So as Joseph forgave, his own words let us know that he was conscious of God's providence, God's government, if you will. But he was also conscious of God's grace. Remember Pharaoh had given Joseph the daughter of a high-ranking priest to be his wife? Well, they had two sons. Joseph named them Manasseh and Ephraim. And those names, according to Genesis 41, 51, means Manasseh, God has made me forget all my trouble. And Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. By naming his sons in that way, Joseph was saying that he could see in all his troubles the hand of God as God showed him goodness and mercy. He considered himself a blessed man. God had blessed him. And in that same spirit, he forgives his brothers. And isn't that what we said at the beginning of our time together this morning? Christians are those who give to others what God has given to them in the Lord Jesus Christ, namely forgiveness. Joseph experienced God's grace, and he extends grace to his brothers by forgiving them. 
So let's look at the statements from the quiz we took at the beginning of the talk. Let's see how you did. And in light of all I've discussed, what are the answers? First, where deep wounds between people are concerned, forgiveness can always be accomplished in a moment. Well, no, it took Joseph some months to reconcile with his brothers. How about the second one? Personal happiness and joy result when people live out what the Bible teaches about forgiveness. I think, yes, as Joseph experienced great joy in the process of forgiving his brothers. We all know that the path to joy is what? Obedience to the Lord's commands, and he certainly commands that we forgive others. Furthermore, there are many blessings that come when we forgive others. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Matthew 5, 9. You will be blessed, you will be called a child of God. Okay. Third question. Most Christian pastors and counselors agree about what forgiveness is and how it should take place. Well, no. Interestingly, Jay Adams, the father of modern-day biblical counseling, and John MacArthur do not agree. Jay Adams says that forgiveness needs to be conditional, that repentance needs to be present. And John would agree with Jesus that in cases where the offense can be overlooked, we should forgive unconditionally without reconciliation being required. Fourth question, reconciliation occurs properly only when certain conditions are met. Well, in the life of Joseph, we saw what? Three conditions, that it be sin be faced, be forsaken, and that it be forgiven. Jesus said little about how people should resolve interpersonal conflict. No. Number six, a willingness to forgive tells you something about a person's salvation. Well, yes, because if you fail to forgive, you're being disobedient to Christ's commands, and that's evidence of a lack of love for Christ and a lack of faith in him. Good people get to the bottom of all their disagreements. Well, no. Even if you forgive a person from your heart, that person may not be willing to reconcile. And there are times when it's simply wrong to forgive. I'd say yes. At times, what? Four times, four cases, four instances. Reconciliation is a necessary part of forgiveness, and without it, forgiveness is incomplete. You may have a heartfelt desire to forgive, but public forgiveness is to be conditional on their repentance, as Christ said in Luke 17.4. So how'd you do? Anyone get a perfect score? If so, you're forgiven. So in summary, we have one overarching principle. For the vast majority of offenses, forgive unconditionally. That's the rose we call forgiveness. There are also four special cases or thorns where repentance is required before formal forgiveness is to be granted. Each involves a situation where someone else is harmed by the offense. First, if another person is offended, you need to seek justice for that person unless they choose to forgive the offense. Second, if the offender is caught up in a pattern of sin that's harming them spiritually or physically, and it's too much for them to bear alone, you have a duty to confront them over their sin and restore them. A third case, when sin damages the church, such as a very public sin that brings reproach in the name of Christ, or sin that if you fail to confront would encourage others to sin in a similar fashion, in those cases the offender must be pursued until they repent. That's the process of Matthew 18, church discipline. And fourthly, when a relationship is in broken Reconciliation should be pursued so the relationship can be restored. And if reconciliation cannot be obtained, you still need to forgive the offending party from your heart. And finally, biblical reconciliation requires that the offending party face and forsake their sin, and then the offended party is to publicly forgive their sin. In conclusion, I just want to acknowledge the influence of John MacArthur's book, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness are my thinking that's listed on your handout. 
I also want to thank Pastor Philip DeCourcy for sharing his insights of Joseph. Those can be found in his sermon series, Mending the Fences, which is available on his church's website, kindredchurch.org. We have uh, a few minutes for questions. I don't know if we have a roving mic or not, but if you have a question, speak up. I'll repeat it uh, for the recording and try to answer it for you. Well, thank you very much for your attentiveness this morning. Yes. How many? You have a neighbor. You had an argument twenty-one years ago. story of a neighbor where there was a dispute 21 years ago and uh, the neighbor's an unbeliever and there's been, uh, there's a root of bitterness now because forgiveness has been withheld for so long and uh, the sister is saying that she is uh, going to go to that woman and confess her sin, that she spoke harshly with her, that that was wrong and ask forgiveness and for and for restoration of the relationship. Bless you, sister. That's a that is the what Christ would have you do. Yeah, because in a case like that, we're to forgive unconditionally, and uh, if we've wronged another, we ne- we need to ask their forgiveness. Not easy to do when twenty one years have passed, but uh, by God's grace, you will do that this week. <laughs> we'll pray to that end. Yes, ma'am. Uh, afterwards, I'll, I'll track it down for you. Absolutely. You bet. Yes, ma'am.
So this is a case of where there is, uh, we're, we're to forgive unconditionally wherever possible. When there has been a breach in the relationship, <clears throat> then we start getting into reconciliation. So you're to, uh, if you have an unbelieving person and you have a breach in the relationship with them, you're to go to that person and, uh, and just and talk to them and to try to understand their perspective. They may have a different perspective on things. May, they may see you, see you as the one who offended them. And if so, uh, be magnanimous, uh, set your pride aside and ask forgiveness uh, for that specific offense, for having uh, offended them and indicate your desire to live at peace with them. Because as the Romans 12 passage says, if it, uh, if it all possible, live at peace with all men. So I think that's, uh, as in terms of approaching an unbeliever, that would be the way I would do it. Be quick to acknowledge your own fault, or if there is a presumption uh, that you've done something wrong, be quick to acknowledge that. That's, uh, that is a Christ-like example. Yes. Yes, Mary. Okay. And go to that person and ask them forgiveness. And they say, no, I don't forgive you. Uh, and you say, okay, well, that's not a, you know, that's fine. But say you go back a few months later and try to ask them forgiveness again. And they say, no, and you just cut the relationship off. Right. What happened? Question is, if you have a, an unbelieving uh, neighbor acquaintance, and uh, you, uh, and there is a, there is a problem between you, and you go to that person and ask forgiveness, and they say, "No, I'm not going to forgive you," uh, and then you go back a few months later and ask forgiveness again, and uh, they say, "I'm not going to forgive you." Uh, what to do? I think at that point you have done what you can to live at peace with them, and then you uh, you go your way. They do not want to be reconciled, <clears throat> and there's nothing that you can do to be reconciled, but you forgive them. You have an obligation to forgive them and, uh, and then let the Lord deal with them. Uh, it's interesting how you, know, you sow that seed and they may say something like that, but uh, in the quiet of the night, the conscience speaks powerfully, even in the lives of unbelievers. And you'd be amazed at things that will happen. Uh, and uh, you have been a wonderful testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ's work in your life by that. You know, it's uh, 9.58. I don't want to keep, uh, keep you away from uh, the sanctuary. If you have questions, I'd be happy to try to answer those. Thank you again for coming this morning, and uh, uh, I pray that we'll all be blessed by the teaching.